it's possible that I'm just a bad person. But I think when you ask the question in 2014, what it means to live with the network, the answer is some confusing mix of dread and resignation and a little bit of fatalism. Um, it, it's, not, it's hard not to look out at the network and, and wonder if, if the air isn't outright hostile, that it's somehow suspect. It's not clear what happened to the project anymore. And so this is a thing that I've been thinking about, um, trying to work through in some of my own projects, which I'll touch on briefly at the end. Um, but what I really want to talk about is, why are we still doing this? What's left of the project? Is what, What's there? It's worth being able to articulate why we are still doing this. Um, a couple years ago, Anil Dash wrote a blog post, and then last year he did a talk titled The Web We Lost. Um, and it's worth reading and watching. It's on the internet. Um, and one of the comments that he made was, for people who were on the web and working and building stuff in the early 2000s, we made tools and behaved in such a way that the alternative was Mark Zuckerberg, and people preferred that. And I think that's a valuable lesson. But more than anything, when, when Anil says, the web we lost, I, I want to stop and be like, really? Like, did we really? So first, I'm going to start with some short stories that um, will probably seem like complete non sequiturs, but hold on to them because um, you, they'll sort of cycle back at the end. Oh my god, this brick. This is a brick. It's in, um, it's in a museum. It's not in any museum. It's in the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. Um, this is a brick in the basement of the South Tower. It's a brick from Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad. Um, I, I still can't even find words <laughs> to talk about this thing. Um, it, it is at the moment sort of the, the, the very definition of a proxy object, a device that is meant to wrap up like entire histories in it. Um, for me, it sort of embodies every single what-the-fuck moment that has happened for the last 13 years, from the first what-the-fuck moment when you were like, wait, those planes are hitting the towers deliberately, to the what-the-fuck moment when you were like, oh my god, America is about to turn all of its energy and attention to revenge. To every single moment for the last 13 years. I mean, we can pick and choose what the latest what-the-fuck moment is. Um, and we could spend all day talking about the 9-11 memorial. It's a curious place. It's very confused. It's not clear whether it's trying to be a mausoleum, which it is, a memorial, which it is, um, or a sort of history lesson. Um, you know, when you look at this brick, if you happen to be around for 9-11 and then the subsequent announcement of Osama bin Laden's death, this is kind of crazy. But I don't know what an eight-year-old is supposed to take away from this, um, except maybe a lesson in schadenfreude. Um, 
And then, you know, even beyond that, the 9-11 memorial attempts to be this sort of comprehensive catalog of every person who was involved, from the people in the towers to the first responders to the people who dealt with the aftermath. Um, and more than anything, the 9-11 memorial is a great luxury. It borders on an indulgence, but it is a great luxury that when you look at it, you sort of, it, it's hard not to think, would that we could only do the same for every tragedy that has ever happened. So the second story is, um, is a story that I heard a couple years ago in the Netherlands. I haven't been able to confirm the details. Um, I believe this to be true, but just take it with a grain of salt. In the last few years, the European Union has cut uh, funding to arts and cultural heritage institutions sort of across the board by about 30%. Um, and this has been a big deal for, uh, for the people who got that funding. One of them was a museum or an archive in the Netherlands that announced they were not simply deaccessioning 30,000 objects, they were just gonna bin them. They were literally just gonna take them out. They didn't have the time or the resources to find a new home for them, so you're just chucking them. And, you know, the tr one of the things about this story that seems like such a tragedy is maybe somebody thought of it, maybe they even tried, but it didn't happen, which was, why wasn't there an effort to just get in touch with the people in that community and, and suggest, just offer, would you like to take care of one of these things? Right? It's no more complicated than a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> Remember, if you have a spreadsheet with an accession number and a contact address, and if 5% of those people just fall off the face of the earth, and another 5% 5, 5 actually just go out of their way to destroy the objects or sell it on eBay or whatever, you've still managed to save 27,000 objects. You've managed to involve the community in the process of preservation and cultural heritage. Third story. And then there's an audience participation section. Um, it's worth considering that archivists, as a professional class, have only ever known, in an historical perspective, timeline. They have only ever known war and looting and pillaging and strife. That's pretty much been the history of the world. And they've done a pretty awesome job keeping all of this stuff safe under those conditions. A few things get lost along the way. There's occasional lapses in professional judgment, but we have a remarkable amount of this stuff. And the reason I tell this story is that Again, if you think about the profession in the abstract, they would be forgiven for believing that the jury is still out on this little thing that we call electricity. That's a relative, like in their world, electricity is like a babe in the woods. And that's something to consider when we think about digital preservation. Okay, now I'm going to commit the cardinal sin of technology-related conferences. So I'm going to try and make it fun and do it in spades. I'm going to quote William Gibson. <laughs> I'm going to quote the same quote from William Gibson that's been quoted who knows how many times. I have a friend uh, who's Italian, and he commented that uh, he said, oh, Florence, it's had so many pictures taken of it. It doesn't exist anymore. And this passage is basically the same thing. 
the meaning is almost stripped out of it. So I'm going to quote William Gibson, and then I'm going to quote William Gibson again. And because this is being uh, recorded for posterity, I would like to invite you all, you're under no obligation, but I would like to invite you to read along with me at the top of your lungs. I'm not going to do it because I'm miked, but okay. Is everyone ready? The future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. Okay, so those are good quotes. There's a reason they get cited all the time. Um, one of the things that interests me about them is you rarely see them side by side. And the, and the reason that's interesting to me is that I work at a design museum. And those two quotes strike me as being two sides of the same coin. They're saying the same thing. But it's mostly, a, there's a power dynamic involved in them. Um, and, it, and it mirrors what I see happening in design museums. Design museums traditionally have collected and focused all of their attention on high-end, ooh-shiny pieces um, that are sort of a proxy for access to a means of production. Right? They're beautiful things, but they're just, <laughs> they're rarefied air. And as a design museum, if you think about design as the application or, or solutions to a stated problem, in the service of a multiplicity, I think that it's hard not to admit that we've done a pretty bad job of covering a whole lot of design that's out there, right? Like, you know, the Smithsonian should probably do an exhibition on quote-unquote white trash design, right? That's the street finding its own use for things, people figuring it out, people making it work for themselves. Um, and in fairness to the Cooper Hewitt, we have a design series called uh, Design for the, an exhibition series called Design for the Other 90%, which is what it says on the tin. Um, and that's great, and there's more work to be done. What both of those quotes share, though, is an awareness of this idea of opportunity. That something, a material, a circumstance presents itself, and it enables something else to happen. So there's that awareness and a strategy for exploiting it. And I say exploited in the non-pejorative sense. Um, economists like to refer to these as efficiencies, which strikes me as madness, because there's often nothing efficient about them. Uh, sometimes it's called a production function, which is, you know, sounds pretty great. Um, and then there's this idea of seeing into the future, which is both more colorful and actually weirdly creepy, because that idea of seeing into the future means you can see something that other people can't. And that's the weird problem, it's not a problem, it's just the reality of opportunity, where once you can see something that you know no one else can see, you suddenly have a vested interest in ensuring that no one else can see it anymore. Uh, the classic example of this is high-frequency trading. Now, until we legislate that high-frequency trading is in fact wrong, there's nothing wrong with what they've done, despite all the havoc that they have wrought on the financial markets. When you stop and read about it, all, we realize all they did was they were like, okay, so we've set up a technical infrastructure that allows me to, if I'm just closer, I can make all the money. That's opportunity. The crazy thing about opportunity is that it's no guarantee of anything. And so one of the examples I like to use for that is OpenStreetMap. 
Um, I love OpenStreetMap. OpenStreetMap is pretty much the promise that at least some of us had, you know, it is the promise realized for the network. This is everything we wanted. It is a bottom-up, community-driven project. It is freely and openly available data that improves every single day. Um, it has a convenience sticking it to the man backstory. Sorry, ordnance survey, but you had it coming. Um, <laughs> it has this enormous suite of tools that have evolved to make it to, to work with it. And a lot of those tools keep finding their way into other projects, so there's that reuse. And then one of the things that I think is most important about OpenStreetMap is it's just sitting there waiting to be used. It's patient. All of this in the service of maps. Maps which are sort of one of the oldest tools of influence and power that we have ever had. They are the tools with which we tell stories, with which we hide stories. And you would think that even though OpenStreetMap has a pretty high or steep learning curve, you would think that by what it provides, people would be crawling all over themselves to be making maps, to be telling their own stories. This is like pure opportunity distilled into a crystallized form. And it's improving. But it hasn't taken. It's, it's a strange thing. I think it's just a little too removed, a little too abstract for people to understand. On the other hand, there is a whole class of professionals who get paid to sit around doing nothing all day but looking at the world and thinking about opportunities. They are, as we've discovered, called the intelligence services. Think about that the next time you read a story about Edward Snowden, or in the States, the Tailored, Access, Tailored Operations Access Group, or whatever the hell they're called. All they do is sit around tinkering. All they do is think about ways that things can be reused. And that's a slightly unnerving possibility. But there you go. The other professional class who do this um, are so-called cool hunters. I was thinking about it this morning, and I was like, cool hunters. Wow, that's like the distillation of the 90s in a single phrase. Um, and it's a thing that people are thinking about more and more. I mean, I don't think William Gibson ever went away, but you see this resurgence around people thinking about the, the pattern matching books and that idea of being able to see the shape of things through the mist. Um, and taking those shapes and crafting them into understanding, and then crafting that understanding into, into opportunity. Um, and, you know, that's fine. They've been around for a while. And one of the things that's worth remembering is that that argument is essentially what the rationale for weblogging was in the mid-'90s. That's what a lot of people said this was going to be. That was the purpose of weblogs. It was that idea of being a cool hunter. It's just that it was distributed, and sort of it blew the doors open on publishers. Um, and you know, you sort of end up. Uh, the dreaded term became influencers. Um, but I wrote this this morning, and I think I'm going to use it forever. 
uh, where it, you end up with personal, personal brand as a kind of non-state actor for influence. And we should be honest, most of the people in this room, or who want to be in this room, uh, to varying degrees, have piggybacked on that. And it's worked out pretty well. I'm not, it's not a criticism, it's been amazing. That's the thing that the web did for everyone, was that it sort of blew open the doors on publishing, and it allowed people just to start speaking. So this is where it gets a little murky. It gets murky because I'm not yet convinced that I'm right about what I'm going to say, and even if I am right, I don't think that there is necessarily um, the convenient satisfaction of a conspiracy at play. I think what I'm about to describe might simply be a confluence of opportunities. And not unlike high-speed trading, someone has some ones in the abstract have figured out, this is great. <laughs> I'm making money hand over fist. And it's this problem where you know, we all became influencers to some degree. And, and two things happened. One is we found a community of like-minded people and we built relationships, uh, and we started meeting in real life, and you know that's partly why I'm here. And the other is we started to apply a measure of success that was essentially a leaderboard. We started to think about how the metrics around that influence, and it sort of evolved to the point where you, it's, you start to look at things like clickbait, and you're like, this is actually the, the perfect commodification of cool hunting, right? Like, it's all about click views and going viral and this notion of success. I think one of the real problems that people are having right now is We've reached a stage where not everybody, but more and more people are able to make a living, to pay their bills, doing what they want. They're able to do the work that they want, and they're able to ride out a lack of attention, and also just the bad work that occasionally happens. The bad work is not, does not automatically equate bankruptcy. But the problem is, is that they're not rock stars. And that's okay, I mean, no one is devoid of ego, but I think it's something that we need to think about. Um, and the question I've started to ask myself is, do we start to warp the underlying conceptual architecture of the network when we focus so much on the sort of ever-present nowness of, like, is it, is it being seen right now? Right? If the world is nothing about, nothing more than click, 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 is it being seen, is it being seen, no one will ever go back. It's that sort of fundamental lack of faith in an audience that they will ever go back and look at something again that starts to warp the whole purpose of the web. And there are people for whom this is actually super convenient, right? For Facebook, and I'm not picking on Facebook. Facebook is just sort of, think of it as in the abstract. They would like nothing more 
than for people to live in the permanent now. Um, and I think it's complicated by the fact that this idea of writing anything down is seen as a death trap when you look at all the news around surveillance. So this is still something I'm trying to work out. Um, and the question is, why is this important? Um, so I'm going to quote Anab Jane, who's speaking later this afternoon. Um, and this is from a talk she did earlier in the year, in which she said, to a more multidimensional world with a plurality of histories, presents, and futures, will help to reveal the, the manufactured promises and give us the capacity to choose, navigate, and maneuver our journeys. In this lies the idea of taking the long view, looking at long stretches of the past to see these evolving new ways of being from an imaginary vantage point in the future. Or, this idea that recall has always been a power dynamic. Um, whether it is the basic right to free association, to share stories, or the right to literacy, or the notion of a public library, which is still uh, an anathema to some people, to broadcasting and rebroadcasting rights, to paywalls and other IP restrictions. We've always seen this at play. And whether it's been through malice or negligence or simply circumstance, the ability to not only see into the future, but to see into the past has not been an opportunity open to all people. Um, and when we think about this idea of recall as a power dynamic, um, there's a lot of work that's been going on in the last couple of years around something called memory reconsolidation, which is a nice bit of new speak. Um, basically, it's research to use protein inhibitors to, in lab rats to essentially erase memories. Um, it, it, it is being studied for use in PTSD and other traumas. Um, but I think we would be foolish not to believe that it would be, if it works at all, that it will become political almost instantly. And I think this idea is what makes the web and the network but the web in particular, so important. It is the ability to return to a thing, to an idea, to a discussion, whatever you want to call it, outside the shared or master narrative at a time of one's own choosing. The ability to shift time in the service of your interests or of simply being able to do that in order to understand one's own interests is pretty profound. We've never had a way to do it at this scale before. Um, it has lowered the barrier for us to not only speak to the future, but to listen to the past. And so this idea that, you know, we can talk about access, that's usually been the framework that we've talked about the internet as. Um, I'm all for access. Uh, but access and access at the time of your own choosing is a subtle but important distinction. Um, and if we're going to talk about opportunities, opportunity as that sort of space in which people can reimagine a situation, I, I don't, I mean, nothing like the web has done that before. 
And I'm not here to suggest that the web is suddenly a new thing. What I want to suggest is that we know how to do this. That one of the, one of the sort of recurring themes I hear over and over and over again is this idea that it's gotten too hard to do anything online. The, the tool chain is too complex. The measures of success are completely skewed because it's all about click rates. And I think it's important for us to remember that neither one of those things are true. So in many ways, I thought about just calling this talk like a celebration of a document-based network. Because that's what the web is. The web is just basically static files and a way to point one back to the other. And the really good news is we know how to do this. Um, it is the simplest, dumbest thing. And I think that that, is <laughs> that will serve us well uh, in the future. Um, it has served us well now, and if you take a grim outlook on the coming days, then um, it might be the thing that saves us. So there's this idea of designing around and building tools, creating things with the intention to remember. Now, this isn't, I'm all for the ability for all of you to have a, you know, a, a real-time back channel while I'm speaking. That's great. Like, that stuff is amazing. I was complaining with people at work at the speaker center last night. I didn't feel so good about that, but it's pretty cool. But it's not always about the moment. You know, I think the rhetoric around everything being an experience is, should be considered harmful. Um, so I work at a museum. We have been closed for two years, three years. We're reopening in December, and um, either because we're visionaries or crazy, we are going, we are developing <laughs> from scratch NFC-enabled hardware. This is a, just an early prototype. Um, we are going to, so it's a pen. The idea is that you'll be able to draw and work on stuff on interactive surfaces. Um, and, you know, the, this is actually really good for a design museum because of all the history of sketching. It's a great sort of proxy device. Um, but the other thing you'll be able to do, if we pull it off, is simply be able to walk up to a label and touch it and save that object to your account. You can have anonymous accounts, too, if you want. Um, that's all it does. And um, it turns out that making hardware is still fantastically complicated and difficult. Um, but it was important for us to do this because it, it allows us to do the thing that everyone wishes they could always do in museums, which is simply remember what the fuck they saw. <laughs> and... You know, people take pictures of wall labels. <laughs> and nothing ever happens with them. It's a great idea. But nothing happens. They just vanish. So, like, that whole experience just drifts off into the past. And so, you know, we, we went out of our way. There's a bunch of reasons why we would prefer people not get their phones out in the museum, not least of which is we're a tiny, cramped space. We're not going to stop you, but we're just like, we're like, what if you didn't have to get your phone out? And I think the real challenge for us will be making people understand and then giving people the confidence to believe 
that when they walk up to an object and touch it, that it's saved, it's cool, we got it. Right? Like, there is no bookmarking experience. It's the experience, if anything, is six months later, when you're sitting in a pub talking to your friends, and you're like, that thing, that thing, but I kind of, fuck, what the fuck was that? And, you know, if you can get out your phone, or whatever, your magic network device, and just go to your visits and be like, well, I know it was there in June, and it's there. That's the magic, right? Suddenly, it is the confidence for people to be able to take advantage of the network. And it means that we meet people halfway in how we think about it. So we'll see if it works. <coughs> so there's this idea of asserting patience. A lot of ideas don't enjoy hockey stick growth. Hockey stick growth, if you ever get the chance, is super fun. Um, but it doesn't happen for a lot of things. And a lot of things die on the vine because of it. And that's a real shame. And when you look at what the, what the web and the network provide, it is that space for things to grow. That space for people to warm up to an idea, to come back to it. People, people are busy. People don't always understand what the opportunity of a service or a document or an idea is. Um, and so one of the ways that I've been trying to think about this is how do you build a service that can just run itself? How do you build a service that can just sort of be left unattended until it reaches some kind of, not even critical mass, just any mass? Or if you get bored of it and want to move on, how do you just keep it running so that you're not just sort of strip mining the history of the web, which is what we do? Um, and some of that is a willingness to just pay the money. But the good news is, like, for a couple hundred dollars a year, you can kind of do this. So one of the projects that I've been working on is um, I built myself a photo sharing website um, where I take a picture and upload it and then I'm not allowed to see it for a year. I'll get an email. I'll start getting emails in about six months just saying like, hey, you took a picture. So that's just kind of a thought experiment to work through like, okay, how do, what does it mean to do this? What does it mean to think about these projects in small pieces? Um, this, is a, this is a phrase we use a lot at the museum to talk about why we put the collection online, even though the metadata for a lot of stuff is terrible. It is that idea that even if... Um, even if there's no meaningful data there, if you and I share a link, we start to give that object mass in the universe. The metadata can always be made better over time. But it is starting to prove that these things exist. And I think one of the most powerful examples I've seen of this uh, recently was in Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. Um, and he makes some pretty... It's worth reading, and there's some kind of terrifying predictions. But more than anything, 
he was able to make the argument with facts. He was able to go back and look at all the records that had been kept over the years. The French have been super, super diligent about this ever since the revolution. They've been keeping taxation records. They've been measuring wealth. Um, and, and with that, there was the raw data to start to reinterpret it, to be able to look at the past and the present and to say, here's what's happening. Um, and so, you know, I think the most important thing is, right now I think there's, there's this idea that everyone is oversharing and it's biting us in the ass because the NSA is somehow developing algorithms to infer motive from, you know, dumb stuff we say on Twitter. And people are a little freaked out, and they should be. Um, but that's not a technological problem. That's a social one. We're going to have to figure that out amongst ourselves. And the computers aren't the issue. But more importantly is that speaking up, being part of the conversation, is not oversharing. <laughs> They're just not the same thing. And that's what the network has provided us. And I, I my, own, my concern is that we are forgetting that. Um, and so I would encourage you to think about what you do and what you build and what you value as not just something in the moment, but how it lasts over time. Thank you.